When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Land Grant Hoyland in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, I am in conversation with DraftKings analyst and host of the Gojo podcast, Mike Golick Jr. In our conversation, we talk first a little bit about the state of college football at large, but then dive into the intricacies of the Ohio State and Georgia matchup coming up on Saturday night in the Peach Bowl in the college football playoff semifinals. Of course, Golick was an offensive lineman for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, so we talk about what the Ohio State offensive line needs to do to protect C.J. Stroud and to prevent Georgia's absolute defensive menace, Jalen Carter, from wreaking havoc on the quarterback. Unlike a lot of other analysts, Gojo actually saw a lot of really good things from the Ohio State offensive line against Michigan and thinks that if they're healthy, they might be able to have some success against Georgia's defensive front as well. We talk about all of that and more and get into some of Gojo's wagering successes and failures over the course of this bowl season. Of course, if you are not familiar, DraftKings plans to launch its award-winning online sports book in Ohio on January 1st, 2023. Not in time for the college football playoff semifinals, but maybe for the championship game if the Buckeyes make it. Of course, that is all pending licensure and regulatory approvals. So, with all of that out of the way, let's get into my conversation with Mike Golick Jr. All right, I am now joined by DraftKings analyst and the host of the Gojo podcast, Mike Golick Jr. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. No, appreciate you having me. So, we're in the middle of bull season right now. We know you've got this this relationship with DraftKings. How are you doing in terms of that with the bull picks this year? Has this been a profitable season for you so far, or are we looking to looking to ramp things up on the New Year's Six side? I think we're looking to ramp things up on the back end here. You know, I, I think right now we're in an interesting adjustment period where so often looking towards betting bowl season or even just trying to predict bowl season in general, you're trying to weigh motivation. You're trying to see what state the roster's in. And now with the portal becoming more active than ever, with opt-outs becoming a more common part of college football, just you know being able to manage all of those different changes, different coaches on the sideline. I mean, hell, we saw Luke Fickle awkwardly standing there behind so Jim Leonard as Cincinnati or as uh, Wisconsin, excuse me, coached in their game against Oklahoma State the other night. So it's all a lot of new forces plying in a part of the year that, listen, I know from personal experience, outside of those New Year's Six Bowls, a lot of those bowl games are nice vacations and a little reward at the end of the year where you may be enjoying the week at the beginning of the week a little bit more than you would during a normal game week. And so all these things kind of affect the outcome of me. My wallet is not quite as heavy as I'd like it to be. (laughs) What do you think about this kind of this weird time period now where because the NCAA allowed this transfer portal window to happen, like almost immediately after the conference championship games, 
obviously that makes sense because they have to get enrolled for the next semester. I understand that, but it really kind of does wreak even more havoc than had already kind of started to happen with these rosters around bowl games. Is there a better way to do this or is this just going to be a mess from here on out? Because I mean, there is no real leadership and they just kind of kind of let people do what they want and they're trying to regulate it as much as they can. But there really is no rhyme or reason to some of the things that are happening in college football right now. No, I think right now it's a lot of clutter. And remember, we got so much change all at once, right? I think to to go before the season and quote Brent Venables, we're drinking change through a fire hose right now. And so because of that, there's going to be a bit of an adjustment period. I think we're going to see a couple of things change. I'd imagine they're going to do something with the early signing window. It's just too jammed up with the transfer portal window opening. And that's too much to keep track of for everybody involved here. I think that one of the good things that came out of this and the thing that I'm interested to see is will this shift bowl season to outside of, you know, the new year six and the eventual expanded college football playoff. Will it kind of shift it to more of spring game. Number one, like one of the things they made as a change this year that I thought was really interesting was for all the bowl games after December 16th, which is pretty much all of them. Last I checked, um, they were adding or, or essentially waiving that four game limit to a right. player's red shirt normally that you can play allowing younger players to get those reps on the field during bowl practice which to me has always been a valuable part of it my favorite part of being a veteran player during down the back stretch of my career were three words young guy scrimmage watching the freshmen and sophomores go at it and practice and start to sharpen their tools a little bit during this time of year because those 15 practices are so valuable. And so I do wonder if for the non-championship contending teams, if that'll be more of the focus and the NCAA might work harder to create opportunities like that. So maybe instead of fans getting a chance to celebrate some of their favorite players who might no longer play in these games for the last time, it'll really be an opportunity to meet even more of the next generation of guys that'll be lining up in those uniforms come the following fall. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of change coming. And as you mentioned, the the expanded playoff being very close at hand will certainly wreak havoc on what we know is bull season. Uh, but it does present a lot of opportunities for some interesting changes, both for the teams that make the playoff and those that don't. But speaking of the playoffs, we are an Ohio State outlet, so I have to talk about that semifinal game that'll be happening at the Peach Bowl uh, on Saturday night at 8 p.m. I listened to your episode of uh, the Gojo podcast uh, that came out on Wednesday, the day we're recording. You had Harry Douglas and Jason Fitz on there, and I don't disagree with what you said, but it is not necessarily probably something that Ohio State fans wanted to hear. I believe your quote was something along the lines of, it kind of feels like we're living in Georgia's world, and not just because this game is happening in Atlanta, but they are the defending national champions. They are the team that is the prohibitive favorite to not only win this game, but to repeat as college football playoff national champions. I don't think that anyone is saying that Ohio State has no chance, but even Ohio State fans are coming into this game expecting them to be decided underdogs. As you kind of look at these two teams, is there a like one thing that Ohio State can hang its hat on and say, this is where we have an advantage? Or are they going to have to have major contributions across the board with people stepping up to do more than they have done throughout the season, have a chance to pull off this upset on Saturday? Uh, no, I think talent-wise, listen, Ohio State, we know talent-wise on paper can compete with anybody in the country. And production-wise, they were one of the best offenses in college football all year long. Like, they're not going to be thoroughly outclassed in that way, right? C.J. Stroud's a future first-round NFL draft pick. Marvin Harrison Jr. was a, you know, uh, not even a consensus, uh, uh, you know, unanimous All-American choice. God, I forget words sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, Emeka Egbuka, around and around we go, 
you didn't have the benefit of one NFL wide receiver during the season in Jackson Smith and Jigba or in the bowl game. And so another one just magically appears because this is Ohio State and that's what happens. And if you go all the way back to last year's bowl season and last year's SEC title game when Georgia struggled and lost to Alabama in that setting, it was because of a dynamic downfield passing attack. So there's going to be opportunities for that. This Georgia defense is certainly not last year's Georgia defense. It's not indestructible. But at the same time, I've said Georgia is basically just giga Chad Michigan. Everything Michigan does, Georgia really does better structurally and is designed in a similar way structurally. And the, the place that worries me most in that is the red zone, because when you look at the Ohio State-Michigan game, certainly one of the big hangups for Ohio State was giving up big plays to the Michigan passing attack, which we hadn't seen from the Wolverines really all season long, regardless of who they were playing. But then on the other side, it was the red zone. Normally, a team that was one of the best in college football in scoring touchdowns in the red zone was settling for field goals a little more often than they were used to. And you're going up against a Georgia team that is number one in college football on defense in red zone efficiency. They might not sack the quarterback as much as you'd like. Part of that, I think, was Jalen Carter being on and off the field and as limited reps as he was for most of the season. But uh, that red zone area is really where it comes to bite you because I think this Ohio State's offensive line we saw get challenged physically in a couple of games the Northwestern game comes to mind and then certainly against Michigan where I think that unit in particular struggled to hold up their end of the bargain and I was going to ask about the offensive line since that is obviously your area of expertise playing a a player like Jalen Carter who is I mean probably if not decidedly the best defensive player in the country maybe even the best non-quarterback in the country What do they have to do to be able to stop him specifically? He's a little bit different than someone like Will Anderson, um, who kind of does things from a different position. How do they have to go against a player like that who can seemingly blow up a play no matter where he is, no matter where he lines up, no matter what kind of play it is? uh, and, And they have to really kind of account for him on every snap, whether it's a run or a pass. Yeah, well, I think it's just that, right? It's awareness. And I said this is similar, ironically enough, for Ohio State last year when they went up against Michigan and you had the two great edge pass mm-hmm. rushers and David Ajabo and Aiden Hutchinson is you cannot afford to, on critical downs and distances, give them free one-on-run rushes. And the same is true with Jalen Carter because he's just got a more direct path to the quarterback. Now, as a former interior offensive lineman, one of the good parts about having the team's best D lineman be an interior guy is it's easier to throw big bodies at him in a way that you are constructed to handle, right? Passing off twists with a center and a guard is a lot easier than a tackle having to account for chip help from a tight end, having to account for where a running back is going to insert in the protection and try and maybe take the steam and heat off an edge rusher. But it also means Jalen Carter has a much quicker path to the quarterback. And we know Kirby Smart incredibly creative in what he's going to deploy from a blitz standpoint, from a, you know, um, simulated pressure standpoint. And so they'll try and find ways, but it, it really is just making sure, hey, you know what, when in doubt, if we've got an option and it's a relatively even look, Let's try and make sure we're sliding the center towards Jalen Carter. Let's try and make sure if we're keeping a tight end and protection, we're going to then have the tackle crashing down to make sure 88 and red isn't going to be able to beat us right at the start of the play and blow it up. Because you see time and time again, if he's got just one guy in front of him, that person's getting hip tossed. And now all of a sudden, Jaden Daniels is getting held up like a trophy at the end of the SEC championship game. And so it really is just, it, it, it sounds so simple, but at times as a play caller, You have so many things on your mind and you have so many things that you want to do. And in an offense like Ohio State's, you've got all these great weapons that we talked about. 
you've got to start every play building with that foundation of, all right, what is our protection and how does it account for the best defensive player on the field each and every snap? And especially when you get into obvious situations, third and short, third and long money downs that every team is prepped and ready for. And one of the issues for Ohio State, especially in the Michigan game, like you mentioned, one of their starting interior offensive linemen, Matt Jones, was out, had a severe uh, ankle uh, or sprained ankle, high ankle sprain. He is practicing right now, but apparently his his ankle is severely taped and it, he he's out there. He's probably going to start. But when you're trying to go up against players like that and whether Ooh. it's Carter or anybody on the Georgia defensive line, kind of like you're saying, like, how does that impact what you're trying to do? So often we hear about, you know, the ankle injuries or the hamstring injuries to skill position players, but we don't pay a whole lot of attention to like the fact that an offensive lineman is beat up because we just assume they're beat up all the time. But in a situation like this, going up against that defense, how could that impact him if he's not a hundred percent? And then how can it impact the rest of the offensive line? Since we know so much of what they do is intermixed with what everybody else is doing. So this jars lose a very clear memory. When I was, I want to say a freshman or it might, I think it was my red shirt freshman year. We traveled on the road to Boston College, and on the cover of their player media guide were two defensive tackles, B.J. Raji and Ron Brace, back-to-back. Massive mounds of humanity. B.J. Raji, who would obviously go on to be a really productive and well-drafted NFL player for the Green Bay Packers. And in that game, Eric Olson, who was a good friend of mine, was a starting guard for us, had a high ankle sprain on his left leg and had that thing basically taped up like a peg leg. He was more or less out there on one leg. But like you said, offensive linemen are pretty much all beat up at the end of the year. But we know high ankle sprain, ankle injury, not built the same. And there were probably four or five plays from that game that ended up on B.J. Raji's draft day highlight reel. Like you can, it can <laughs> go good. bad really quickly in a situation like that where all of a sudden you can't anchor against a guy who is going to demand you anchor better than you've ever anchored. So to answer your question, it can go very bad. Now I'd say the advantage for Ohio state and part of this is just schematically what they do best. Ohio state's got really great athletes along their offensive line. When you let them go and run and cut and run spread zone and run outside zone, they can be pretty, really productive. You know, the guys they've had, obviously Trevion Henderson won't be there, but Mayan Williams, these backs, they're good zone backs. And this is an offensive line that I think technically sometimes struggles, but athletically and running that play, they're usually pretty solid. And so what you can do off that obviously is then build in boot action passes, move protections where you get the offensive linemen basically just turning and burning. Like we would always joke, those plays are the best because you don't even watch them in film. Everybody gets double pluses and you move on because it's the easiest play in the world but it moves the defensive front. It gets them out of the way and it buys CJ Stroud time to look for some of these weapons down the field in a play action pass scenario. And so I would imagine stuff like that's going to be at a premium, trying to move the pocket against a player like that, trying to make sure that you constantly change the launch point for CJ Stroud so that that player can't get a beat on it. Like that's one part of it. And this is a lot, again, on the play caller is we see it with dynamic ends, but certainly interior guys, you got to throw as much different stuff at them, especially early as possible, because you want high-end athletes having to think. They operate so much on feel, on going out there and playing fast. And if you can sow some seeds of doubt early, it helps your offensive line. It obviously helps protect your quarterback, and it makes everyone's job a little easier. And that is really the area where this offensive line has succeeded for Ohio State this year, that far more 
successful in pass protection than in run blocking. They're, yep. uh, they've only allowed eight sacks all season. They're fifth in the country. I- ironically, Georgia is just one sack ahead of them. Of, of course, they played one extra game in the uh, conference championship game. So if you are going to try to make the Georgia defense, whether that's the the offensive line or the linebackers or anybody else blitzing, um, kind of have to think and get out of just having to rely on their sheer athleticism. What are some things that this offensive line and then the play calling, as you mentioned, with maybe getting CJ Stroud, uh, you know, rolling the pocket out to the right or something. What are the things that they can do to kind of counteract all of that athleticism that Georgia has? Yeah, uh, move plays like that, cut guys early and try and get them on the ground. D linemen hate having to worry about their knees, um, try and get the ball out early. They also, you know, listen, you can hear all the time. My dad was a former defensive lineman. And the one thing they're all taught is, hey, if you can't get the quarterback, stop, get your hands up, do all that. After a while, that gets kind of demoralizing if you're a defensive lineman. People always talk about quarterbacks get bored taking the check down all the time. Defensive linemen, especially on the up front, get tired of plugging and two gapping and doing all that stuff. Like eventually the really good ones want to go and try and get after people and get in the backfield. And so if you can change things east and west enough to make life difficult on them. Jet handoffs. We know Ohio State loves to get the ball out in the perimeter to these wide receivers on screens. Your other wideouts obviously have to block really well against the Keeley Ringos of the world and the guys on the perimeter of a Georgia defense that, to be frank, is built to stop those things, right? When you look at what Kirby Smart has built there with him and Nick Saban in that tree, they have built this defense to lighten the box, to use angles to create advantages so that they can send resources to the passing game and try and limit your ability to throw those bubble screens on the outside, turn passes into pseudo run plays. But you've got to mix a bunch of those in and really vary that play calling early to try and just get them looking in every direction but what's coming right at them. If we turn to the other side of the ball, you mentioned that Georgia is kind of a variation of what Michigan does. I don't know that they necessarily do it in the same way, but they are very much similar in yeah. terms of a, a running attack, a, a more downhill in your face running attack. But one of the things that really sets Georgia apart from not only Michigan, but pretty much everybody in the country uh, and maybe some NFL teams even is the fact that they have two absolute monsters at the tight end position, which is so hard to defend even one. If you've got a guy like Brock Bowers uh, and Darnell Washington, like it, it's tough to figure out how to block or, or how to cover one of them, whether you're throwing out linebackers or trying to double them and bracket them with corners and safeties. Ohio State played your Notre Dame fighting Irish. Uh, Michael Mayer is a very good uh, tight end, but he's one person. Georgia has two of yeah. them. What? How, how can you account for those two guys when they are such ginormous human beings that have unbelievable skill position athleticism to go along with that? Yeah, you know what? I'd say this, too, for the Ohio State defense. The one thing that has impressed me and that has been the thing that could certainly help them in that regard is that Jim Knowles effect worked. Like people point to the Michigan game and say, oh, they, they got bullied in that game. Not really. Like late in the game, they gave up some big runs. But you turn on the tape, like I always tell people, you could see this from the TV copy. You want to know how things are going in general. Look at the line of scrimmage and just see which way each color is going. And more often than not, the team wearing red and silver was pushing Michigan back. That's a yeah. really, it's the the Joe Moore award-winning best offensive line in college football. And JT Tumalo, uh, Tumalo, Zach Harrison, and all those guys 
were holding their own and getting good push up front. Obviously, you know, Tommy Eichenberg, this linebacker court is a lot faster and I think more instinctual than what Ohio State was dealing with last year production wise. And so it's going to be incumbent on all those guys to have big games because to your point, what that tight end room allows them to do is make use of an offensive line that is really athletic. You see a ton of pin and pull stuff from these guys up front on the Georgia offensive line to say how they do it differently than a team like Michigan. I think Georgia is one of the best screen teams in college football when it comes to getting their bigs out in space, running and blocking to try and set up openings for any of these tight ends, Brock Bowers, any of these wide receivers on screens. And then they also love to, whether it's to the short field or the wide side, get guys like Broderick Jones out pulling. And when they're in space, nightmares happen. But for that to be the case, you've got to have that seal down that comes from big bodied blocking tight ends like Bowers and Darnell Washington. And so it's really going to be incumbent on those ends, especially. And then on those linebackers to be able to defeat blocks over the top and make plays like that, because if Georgia is able to get it rolling, we see all the time, they'll just keep going back to the well on it and they'll beat you in the face with it over and over again until you say uncle. Yeah, that's actually something that Ohio State fans have been very critical of this coaching staff, especially on offense for not doing that. It almost feels like a lot of times that Ryan day and the rest of the office of coaching staff try to outsmart defenses rather than just taking what is obviously there and continuing to do it until they are, you know, forced to stop. And if we pull back on that to more of a 10,000 foot view, and you know, this coming from another blue blood college football program, I, I wonder Ohio state is in the college football playoff second time in three years, they are one of the top four or five teams in college football, always at the top of recruiting rankings, very rarely lose more than one game. So there is no doubt that the vast majority of college football fans would love to have the success of an Ohio State program. But having lost to Michigan for two years in a row, not having won a national championship since that very first college football playoff, there is some sentiment in the fan base that like, yes, it's good, but it's not good enough. I don't know who would be better to run Ohio State's program or if that's really even the right question. But I wonder from you from watching from the outside, but also probably having some experience as a Notre Dame alum, like where is that line of demarcation between the expectations for a regular college football program and the expectations for a blue blood premier program? Where does the rubber meet the road there? And and is it fair to be critical of, a, of an Ohio State program that does win 95% of its games? but hasn't crossed that finish line in a number of years. Hey, I've always been fond of the statement. Fair is a place where they judge pigs. Like there's nothing (laughs) fair about college football. We make brash decisions in the name of what happens in rivalry games pretty often. And that's the biggest difference. And the thing that I'll always say as a Notre Dame fan is at least for us, we had to get to the playoff to get to our pain, like to get to the teams that were really going to be able to hurt us. We were waiting till then, you know, the 2020 season, you played Clemson a couple of times and that certainly kind of changed the math. You've had some big time matchups like Ohio State to start this year. But, you know, with our biggest rival in SC, you see him at the end of the season and that's been good lately for Ohio State. And this is true for Alabama, LSU, what's going on in the SEC West. Like you have the closest proximity to your biggest pain possible, meaning your season not only is defined by the game because it's a rivalry game, it's also usually a window into the Big Ten Championship, which is usually always a window into the college football playoff. And so it seems wild for the rest of us on the outside looking in. But when you see consistently how much that game matters, not only because of sentiment and proximity and tradition, but also the results at the top end of the sport, 
it's understandable for there to be some consternation, especially because it's been a pretty one-sided rivalry as of late. That being said, I don't know if there's someone better right now. Now, for Ohio State, you can probably have that feeling like LSU and some of the other top-flight recruiting programs, which has been, hey, we've just sort of always had someone who's able to take our talent and make it work really well. Going back to Jim Trestle through Urban Meyer up through Ryan Day, like there hasn't been a ton of drop-off in the last however many years of Ohio State fandom. And so I don't think that someone different should be doing it other than Ryan Day. I mean, you look, the offensive production's been insane. The defensive production picked up. He went out and did a thing that's usually hard sometimes for coaches. Change the way you do things. Make important hires. Let people that you've worked with for a while go. And so I think that's always important. It's really going to be now, how do they adjust to what Michigan decided to do? Because I've always said a program like Ohio State, usually inside conferences, people had styles that had to win the fight. You had to build yourself in the likeness of your conference to get out of there first and then worry about the top level after that, with the exception of a few programs. Traditionally, the USC's, the Ohio State's, Florida in the early 2000s, Bama, Georgia, you name it. They're built to win national championships. They recruit so well and at so many positions, especially the skill ones, they get to kind of buy that, bypass that. Michigan said not so fast, and they made themselves the super Big Ten team. Like when you think Big Ten, you think big bodies up front on both sides of the ball. We are going to punch you in the face over and over again and see if you swallow enough of your teeth and can survive that. And now that they've decided to make that adjustment, Ohio State, who is built to fly and built to run and gun as well as any team in the country, has to now go back and say, all right, we're going to have to do more of a job serving that original identity. And we're going to have to make sure that, yeah, we don't just have talented guys in the trenches, but you've got what you had in 2014, which was a bully. Like that championship was built on the back of Zeke Elliott and that offensive line beating the hell out of people. And when they played Notre Dame a couple years later in the Fiesta Bowl, they went out and they wore them out physically up front. And somewhere along the way, that stopped being the case, it seems like, for for this Ohio State team. And so I think that's going to really be at the core of what they've got to address. And if they don't, then at some point, if Michigan keeps this up for another couple of years, if Ohio State goes on what for them is going to feel like a severe championship drought, maybe then you start to ask some questions, but I don't think it's right now. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, Kevin Wilson, who's the longtime offensive coordinator, even dating back to when Urban Meyer was there uh, with a co-offensive coordinator with Ryan Day, he is leaving to become the head coach at Tulsa. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what Ryan Day does to fill that open OC position, even though despite my protestations, he will probably continue to be the main play caller. If they do elevate someone like Justin Fry, who is a running uh, guys and offensive line coach, if they elevate him to offensive coordinator and kind of let him get his fingers all over that uh, offense even more, I think that could kind of play in to what you're talking about, about reestablishing that bully ball offensive uh, running game. But um, I'll wrap it up here on two questions. I, I can't, have you on and not ask a Notre Dame question. It it was an interesting first season for Ohio State alum, Marcus Freeman. It seems like things have gotten really good for Notre Dame, maybe not officially yet. Over the last couple of days, it sounds like y'all have a new quarterback coming in, which is has to be pretty exciting. I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but having Sam Hartman show up for the Irish makes me not as much excited about the return game that Ohio State has to play in South Bend next September. We'll wait and see when this news goes final, and I'm not going to get too excited. But, you know, we, we've seen the reports, Pete Thamel at ESPN, saying that Notre Dame is uh, right now the leading leader in the clubhouse for the landing spot for him. I mean, he'd be the best quarterback on Notre Dame's campus since 
Brady Quinn, Jimmy Clausen in his best years in that school, an accomplished veteran signal caller in that offense would be an incredible boon for the Irish, who we know dealt with issues at quarterback this year. Your starter in uh, in uh, Tyler Buckner injured really early in the season. Drew Pine came in and developed really well by the end of the year. And I think Tommy Reese and the offensive staff deserve a lot of credit for that because he's not an incredibly talented quarterback. But with the way they operated that offense, with the way the offensive line became an overwhelming strength by the end of the season, they were able to get a lot out of that. We saw Notre Dame with a veteran player in Jack Cohn able to get them out of a bunch of jams in the 2021 season. And I think when you look at 21 versus 22, biggest difference was you had a veteran coach and a veteran quarterback at the helm, even if Jack Cohn from Wisconsin wasn't perfect. Sam Hartman, you're talking about the ACC's all-time leader in touchdown passes, who had to operate in one of the most strange offenses in college football, that long mesh where he was routinely throwing from inside a phone booth and somehow managed to make it work. He will never have been better protected than he would be this upcoming season in South Bend. And for a Notre Dame offense that's absorbing the loss of the best tight end production-wise, statistically, however you want to phrase it in school history and Michael Mayer, they're going to need that presence to be able to get a young receiving core continuing to develop and an offense on track that's losing a huge part of its identity from that season. So hard to overstate how impactful a player of Sam Hartman's caliber winding up in South Bend for this offense would be. And for him, listen, I know he's an undersized guy, but I'm sure he's got NFL aspirations before he becomes the next in the pipeline of Wake Forest quarterbacks to go on The Bachelor as the contestant there. Um, <laughs> Another passion wants, of yours, I know. I, I, that's a big passion of yours, yeah. They've got an incredible pipeline to it. The Wake Forest to Bachelor uh, recruiting pipeline is a well-worn path that Sam Hartman is on, but assuming he has NFL aspirations, obviously, he's going to an offense that's got a lot more NFL stuff to it. Tommy Reese is a guy that cut his teeth uh, in some part in the NFL and has a bunch of elements of that in his offense that uses formations, that uses tight ends, that gets the quarterback under center, and will certainly meet him halfway. But I I think would do a lot for Marcus Freeman in year two, who, to your point, developed really well this team over the course of a long season that didn't start off great and now has to take that next step in year two. Yeah, I, I know that there was, uh, especially because it was his first game and there was a lot of buildup and animosity kind of talking back and forth between Ohio State and Notre Dame, at least the fandoms leading up to that game. But I, I think that most uh, Ohio State fans are really looking forward to uh, some success for Marcus, at least after they play Ohio State. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise, long-term <laughs> yeah. success until they play again. But um, I'll wrap it up here. DraftKings has the line for the Peach Bowl at uh, Georgia minus six and a half. I don't know personally that I would take that number for Ohio State at this point. I wonder for you, where where would the number have to be for you to bet Ohio State in the college football playoff semifinal against Georgia? Probably, probably around like eight or nine, probably in that range. It'd have to be over a touchdown because your point here, I- I'm not going to bite on this. This Georgia team has earned the respect on both sides of the balls. Listen, and I thought it was interesting. Stetson Bennett was very candid when asked at media day the other day about why teams don't repeat often. And he said, it really gets easy with all the pats on the backs to take your eyes off the prize. And I think we saw Georgia guilty of playing with their food multiple times during the course of the season. They locked in down the stretch here and coming off an SEC championship game where defensively well below the standard, we know we got to ticked off Kirby smart, giving up all those yards to Brian Kelly's LSU squad. And so 
I think because of all that, because that team was able to go out and accomplish a goal they didn't last year in the SEC title game, you're going to get an extremely dialed in unit that, again, is, you know, their offensive line was the second runner up behind Michigan for the Joe Moore Award for the best O line in college football. Their defense is going to have the benefit of a healthier Jalen Carter in the middle. And all those things just lead me to believe that right now, you know, if it's Georgia versus the field, I'm taking Georgia. Yeah, I don't think that anyone would fault you for that pick. I will say Ohio State has been in this position before going up against a supposed world beater uh, of an SEC team. So there is a little slim hope running through Buckeye Nation right now, but I don't think anyone would be shocked if uh, your diagnosis of the Peach Bowl ends up happening. But we will continue to knock on wood and hope for the best because that is what football fans do, especially college football fans. We hope for chaos. Uh, and oftentimes, let's be honest, more times than not, especially this season, we've gotten chaos. So uh, yes. <laughs> would not be surprised if that happens this Saturday as well. But uh, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to run through all of this stuff. I wish you the best of luck for the rest of the bowl season. Hopefully your wallet gets a little bit fatter down the stretch than it is right now. And, uh, and we'll be following along to make sure that you've got enough spending cash for the rest of 2023. I appreciate that. Thoughts, prayers, and donations uh, are not required, but they are certainly appreciated. Thanks for having me, and uh, good luck this weekend. It's going to be exciting to watch. I think a lot of people look at, uh, you know, I've heard a number of people say Georgia and Ohio State feels like the national title on semifinal weekend. So hopefully that game lives up to the billing.